0: back to the Time for Heroes podcast. Right on the podcast today, I have Anton Pell. Anton is a music promoter among tons of other things he's done in his life. Growing up between Aberdeen and Manchester, was just going to go through his career. Um, and it's pretty eventful, you say. Um, So we'll just get back to the start of your early life, growing up and what it was like for a young Anton.
1: Uh, Well, back then, growing up in Scotland, it was pretty much a world away from where I am now in Manchester. So uh, getting into music in Scotland, it, it, it was quite a good scene, but more the house music, more techno, things like that in Scotland. But I had I'd always come down to Manchester where my mum lived and spend holidays with her. So I'd be going back with like albums from the Happy Mondays and stuff like that, which I get slated for initially. But I stuck with it. Ended up getting a job DJing at eleven, and kind of went from there.
0: Right, and obviously growing up between Aberdeen and Manchester, obviously you touched on the music, but you were a football fan as well. You played football to some level. So what 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 was your team? Yeah, my team was supported. I supported Aberdeen
1: as a boy. Right. And... I still do, obviously, and United, but uh, Aberdeen, especially moving up to Aberdeen, say, in 1980, it was impossible not to. My dad was trying to make me a Celtic fan because he's Irish, so he was pushing that onto me. I got me Celtic kits, but growing up in Aberdeen at that time when they dominated pretty much Europe and Scottish football anyway, um, it was impossible not to get swept up with that. So Aberdeen still is stand
0: free. Okay. And did you hear from your dad yesterday after the the result? Uh, what? I've, no, 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 no. He lives <laughs> in Australia. I don't hear from him
1: that often. But no, not uh, no. I did watch it though. I watched it myself. We were unlucky first
0: half. A couple of mistakes. Yeah. And uh, and they killed it off at the end. So it's funny that as well. i have get. I'll get. Uh... Three cousins, three brothers, and um, two of them are Celtic fans, and the other one's an Aberdeen fan. What are you, Celtic? I'm Celtic, aye. Aye, the they grew up in Glasgow, and they moved down to uh, Nottingham, and when they went to school, obviously people were asking them what team they supported, so two of them said Celtic, that's who they supported, Another one picked Aberdeen because he played the same colour as Nottingham Forest, and he supported them all his life since. Still, he stays in Glasgow and he goes up. he's a season ticket holder for Aberdeen. He's up every week. Yeah,
1: I've seen that a few times, going away with Aberdeen on buses. I've gone up myself and gone away games, and there's people that have just picked the Scottish team at random, get involved with the banter and the ultra scene that Aberdeen have with the flags and things like that, and yeah. they just travel everywhere with them. No no connection to the city, just gone like that on a map like them. <laughs>
0: You touched on that. You were DJing at school. Um, what sort of music was that? Was that kind of mere kind of rave music at that point?
1: well, no, not really, because I mean, I started off with a set that included alternate and things like that, just to kind of stand me out a bit and uh, to get me the job in the first place. But back then, it was more grunge in Scotland. It was more. Yeah, Nirvanas were coming into it, Pearl Jam, Faith No More, all these sort of bands. And there was a big grunge movement that kind of replaced that Manchester movement back then. So, And that didn't come back round again, until so I guess Oasis. But at the time, um, it was the grunge, really. We had bands, so I'd start DJing, and then there was bands that were doing covers in Nirvana and things like that. And I'd put them on while I'm DJing and it it just got natural progression. Uh, That was gig promotion. You didn't know it at the time, but I guess that's that's exactly what we do now, the same thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, And then kind of your family, your dad moved to London, your dad got a job in London and kind of... Yeah. You were down there for six months. Yeah, Uh, that's when
1: it tits up.
0: yeah. (laughs) So is, would you say that's when everything kind of changed? How how did you feel kind of moving down there away from all your mates?
1: Yeah, pretty much it was really tough at the time because I'd got to a position where I was doing a lot. I was playing football, I was in the cadets. I was like a large corporal in the cadets, captain of my football team, doing all this stuff. I had my subjects planned and it just came out of the blue. So within two weeks I was off down to London to with my dad so it's only taken away from the family going I was too young to leave education because the Scottish school system is you do four years you do your GCSEs in four years your standard grades
2: mm-hmm. in
1: England you do them in five years so because moving up and down as a kid I ended up being really young just turned 15 when I'd done my S standard grades so I had to stay in education with my dad moved in London and put me in an art college in Farnham everyone was 18 I I was a world away from the Scottish village I knew, all these English people, (laughs) you'll know what I mean. (laughs) I talk with a funny accent and that's down south. So that's worse than like, there's a north-south divide. Manchester and the north of England's cool, but anywhere south of that's not cool. But but, yeah, it was just tough, really tough, right? Culture shock. I tried to enjoy it, but I just, the work was really hard that I was having to do and Mm -hmm. I just, just
0: missed everything, just wanted to get home. That's all I wanted to do, get home. Yeah, and your, your brother, he was still, was he back in Aberdeen still? Yeah, he's still there. He still yeah. lives out in Countryside and Bankery. Yeah, so you ended up, you, you go back up to Aberdeen. How was that then, going back up there, kind of yourself and enrolling back in school and things like that? It, just, it seems quite a responsibility to, to kind of go back up there, but to go back to school. And that's just all I wanted to do. I just wanted to go go back and because you do
1: your you do you can do fifth year and sixth year in scotland so you can do a you can do like your equivalent hires you can do them two years so even if i missed fifth year i thought i thought i can that can always be my aim go back for six year and do them in six year i wanted to do what i had planned go to university with my friends in edinburgh and do all this stuff that you that you have planned from the age of like 11 12 and it was just all going wrong but getting back to scotland it was like a I felt i'd achieved something but it was in a bad way stopping off in manchester along the way there was bad guardians that were giving you prescription drugs and all this stuff it was just it was just awful it was yeah. just awful i wasn't i was where i wanted to be but i wasn't who i wanted to be and i had nobody around but so but i still knew i was better still knew what i wanted to do so I, but i didn't know the problems i carried with me they were just things that It just just, just happened, and then suddenly you've got all these problems that are built up in the background, you're into your prescription drugs, you're into all this other stuff that suddenly you can't get that in in this little village, so that's when it becomes apparent that it it was a problem then. But anyway, I myself out, I got back in school, but I was just struggling to keep keep attendances because I was working full-time as well and things, uh, a family took me in on a farm that I was paying everything thirty pound a week to live there and stuff. I chop wood for Mars bars and things like that. It was it was a different life, but I was I was happy then. But again, too young. to Looking back, I was a vulnerable kid. I was just turned sixteen. I didn't really have much direction. I, I was worth something, but just didn't know.
0: Yeah, I didn't really have an end in sight. It was tough. It's funny, and about like as I say, it's funny. It's not funny, but you seem to have in one aspect, you, you, your head was screwed on. You had a plan, but at the same point, maybe in other aspects, your life was kind of falling apart in no direction. It's kind of that was influences, I guess, being easy
1: led, doing yeah, doing mm. things like I had a best mate Pete who was in is in the book, and he was just a, nothing like where I was from. He his. His mum was an alcoholic, his dad, his stepdad ended up to looking after him, and when we were 13, I remember going to his house, and he's chopping up weed in the kitchen for all these drunks, and then one day he left a pile of towels at the top of the stairs, his stepdad who took him on fell over, died, and he's on his own from the age of 13, 14, and yeah. wasn't much support for him, but his alcoholic mother who dropped back into his life and gave him all these prescription drugs and things like that, and... It was just, just, so I'm quite lucky that I survived all that. He didn't, you know, other people didn't, but I did. Yeah,
0: so, obviously you mentioned the family taking you in. Then at some point we were working in a hotel as well, and there's a story about you doing the toilet next to Michael Patillo, Yeah. Um, <laughs> explain, explain that in a wee bit more detail, and, and secondly, um, who was is, who is better dressed out of yourself in Portillo? Yeah well it depends if you're like Blue Rosette type person
1: <laughs> But that day yeah Well it was a five star hotel Called Bankery Lodge and it was famous for having Tory parties come and stay I Had the River Dee run through it which was exclusive Salmon fishing river that sort of thing So it was a retreat hotel But, but the family took me in But They gave me a room off grid so in the basement So it wasn't on the fire plans and all things Like that it was behind a wine cellar I'd have to walk under the basement Through some corridors to get there and uh so when the uh, when the police came and did the sweep like they do with people in their building like politicians and stuff they came to the sweep of bombs and they didn't have the plans of my room so i'd been out the night before i think euro 96 was on at the time so i wake up uh, yeah it was because i dyed my hair blonde to look like gaza and it came out <laughs> like bright bright ginger and i remember just getting up in my cartoon boxy shorts wobbling through to the toilet and there he was, stood next to me. There was a midst some scandal, I think, in his life at the time. So yeah, I got a bit of a fright. I knew the face because of something like that, and the blue rosette. And then someone I said, "What's going on?" And somebody told me, "We've got have they not been to your room. They've kicked us all out." I'm like, "No, I just woke up." John Major was there. Everybody.
0: <laughs> Where was he wearing those uh, pink pastel coloured trousers or anything like that? You see, you see uh, him in these. No, he was just in a suit, just in his normal suit. It was just me
1: that I like, had my boxer shorts on. So, uh, yeah, and stood next to him, so he looked a bit taken about. Like, how the hell did you get in here? <laughs> uh, I'm the same. Man. I don't want to be doing in a time.
0: Right? He's quite a stylish guy now when you see him on the, the train. Yeah. Program, they're, they're ideal on a, a Sunday, see with a hangover, sitting watching Portillo uh, no, I quite dancing like him. on trains. Yeah,
1: I always watch him. Easy watching, isn't
0: it? Yeah. Obviously, later on in the book, you're, you're selling, you're selling weed and all that from time to time, um, and then you kind of get in touch with some gang, um, yeah. to the point, to the point where to the Scottish government, um, you're making millions of pounds. Sure. <laughs> we we know what they're like with their figures and kind of massaging figures to suit themselves, but how how did all that come about? just just by being stupid again vulnerable easy
1: led at that age not making excuses because things that I did weren't right back then but um yeah it was just it was more business than anything like let's make our student loans go a bit further invest in something where can we get this amount from and pay for it and to get that sort of amount you've got to jump up the ladder a bit and then you jump up the ladder these people are getting made aware of you and that's it. They see what you can do like that. They want more of it. They put the claws in and then it's big drops here, do this, do that. Before you know it, I was getting kidnapped and forced into like big, big stuff, big rounds and like pallets full, like daily. It was just awful, awful time.
0: It's mental. I mean, I can mind. I mean, I, I'm, I think, about the same age as you, maybe a year younger. And I, I can mind I, I was kind of the same. Just I bought a bit of weed here and there. And I can mind some guy getting me like a, a nine bar and saying, oh, no, you sell that. And it, it freaked me out even just yeah. having like a nine bar to the point where mm-hmm. that's where you started it. And then it got progressively worse. I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine um, picking up pallets and stuff like that. And at that age as well, it must have been so hard and so frightening. Like, you don't know a way out.
1: It was that was the worst thing about it. I never saw a future anymore. Like it was like your future was taken away from you. You were forever indebted to people who didn't want want to lose you or want you out of the picture. You constantly had that daily pressure of finding untouchable amounts of money and just just constant. When you look back, you see a lot of it was torture. A lot of it was people taking advantage of your vulnerability at that time. But when you are that age. Um you go with it, you you know, the terror does take over and you do anything, you do anything they'll say, you'll say anything to keep people happy, you know what I mean? And you you, you things kick in that you didn't know you had, and you've just got yeah. a power through it. But there was times, there was many times where I just went out in my car and drove, put my foot down and thought, right, if I hit this corner and miss it, I'm I'm okay with that. Do you know what I mean? And and yeah. make it home. And I go, right, I'm meant to be here. Let's just, let's go again. Let's see what we can do. But there was times when I, I did give up
0: mentally and thought, like this is it, I don't care anymore. I don't care. You're mm. kill me. So I mean eventually your your family stepped in and kind of took you took your way back down to Manchester at the equation. And then there was a, a court case in which you you kind of testified against them. How how hard was that kind of Again, is you bulking up and having it? A- it's the stigma
1: of what you're doing that's the hardest thing. Do you know what I mean? Like the grass, or is he what was mm-hmm. and things like that? But it got to the point where the I didn't see it like that. I thought I I became I, when everything was relayed back to me. And there's a few police forces involved and. They try terrorising my family as well, like that. There's no choice then. Do you know what I mean? There's to to protect others going forward and just to try and move on from it. And the the lies that were coming out and the terror that had been put on me. Yeah, I wanted them to feel that back too. I wanted to look them in the eye and give them that back too, and get and make them feel as powerless as they made me feel for years. Do you know the torture I went through every day, the the beatings, the kidnappings, slicings of my fingers, things like that. Uh, waking up in the bath, you own know, pools of blood
0: wrapped in Yeah, yeah that, that's just that. I mean, and uh, uh, all you you're as much a victim as anybody else. You know, like you have been exploited as a young boy. You're not really able to know better at that age, and once you do know better, you're kind of there, there. seems no way out. So uh, you're a you're a victim in it as well.
1: Yeah, well, that's, I see that now. I deal with it in a different way. I see that as somebody else. Like I could deal with it in the third person and stuff like that and things like that. But, yeah, it never goes away. But I, I, I look back now and think I was a victim, but I was also involved, you know, and it's hard. I, I do carry a lot of guilt from that period. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for, more so for my family and people like that, that had to get involved. That was never something I wanted, Uh it was just forced upon us that it had to, had to happen that way. And so, yeah, that was the hardest thing, actually, having to go to court, get get through that barrier, because it took, it took so long, it took a year or two for the, to find this gang after they'd gone underground and things like that. So it was pretty tough, that, that period. And then they came out saying, making up all these lies, and that's when it's, I don't, know, I don't care anymore, I don't care anymore, I'm, I'm yeah. giving you it back.
0: At that point as well, you... you start you had a market still. Which you were quite a deal boy. But then some of the the stuff you were selling, the point where you ended up getting raided, your house got raided in the fun of your or your knockoff gear and stuff like that. Around about the same time your 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 daughter was born and obviously Pete your pal that you mentioned died um, not long after that. Which obviously that must have had an effect as well. Like, looking back on that, do you, um, when Pete met your daughter, he was so happy for you, and then it was only a couple of days later yeah. he died, so how did that affect you?
1: Um, it was really tough, because he just could not long come back into my life, and Pete had a tough time. He kept going, kept going, and at that age, but uh, he'd come over, drug addiction, he had a partner, We got really bad into heroin, he had a baby who died, so following that he got into heroin, mourning his baby and stuff, and uh, he was getting clean, he was getting clean, and I bumped into him just going, I was going to get a tattoo one day and I just heard him singing an Aberdeen song across the road, singing Stand Free at me, so I was like, that's what I'm going to get tattooed on my arm, I said, I've got it tattooed on my arm from that moment uh, but yeah, so it was tough for that reason, it was just, things like that that are so quick, and happened from the blue they just don't expect him, so it takes a while to sink in it took months for autopsies and things like that and um, i've got the baby obviously to think about at the time the court case linging over me and everything like that uh, and with with pete the hardest thing was when it came to the funeral and just how how i remember how light he felt in the coffin that sort of things you know all of us carrying him and uh, just, just what a tragic waste! All the people who'd let him down, all the guardians who'd come into his life—none of it was his fault. He, did, he had no choice. He didn't have a crossroads ever. He had one way—a left or a right each time—and they were mm-hmm. both bad, bad choices. So, like, it, it's kind of an inspiration to me because I have to, I have to—if one of us is going to do something or go be better—it's it, on my shoulders now. So I carried yeah. that. But the toughest thing was, yeah, you look out on it while you're speaking in the church and you see all your friends just absolutely devastated over it and still are to this day, a lot of them.
0: Well, I mean, that's what I was going to touch on. Um, do you feel now, obviously, yeah. that you're, you're kind of living this life for, for both of you, which you, you said, yeah, that's kind of... that that's, that's the reason why you move on and kind of... Yeah, definitely,
1: because he was... He was the mate who got me into all that sort of music early days when I was a kid. Yeah, I know he got me into other stuff, but on the music side, uh, yeah, (laughs) I I carry that responsibility. Yeah,
0: we both can't fuck up, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So obviously you had this court case looming over you, you ended up with a community order and um, ended up with proceeds of crime. Obviously, eventually you ended up in the jail, you got 30, 30 days in the jail. Yeah. yeah, first time you've ended up in jail, and you you used that kind of market stall mentality to kind of keep yourself safe in the jail selling sachets yeah. of sugar. Well, it was actually it was it was
1: spoons and cups of sugar. It wasn't yeah. sachets. What I noticed about as soon as I got in, I was baffled that uh, they they give you about ten tea bags for the day, but about two sachets of sugar. So there was a <laughs> shortfall there. So, and people were putting strawberry jams in the sh- in the teas to make them sweeter. So, I thought, why has no one thought of this? So, I had a bit of money in my pocket, only 60 quid, but you go into prison with 60 quid for a couple of weeks, it's a rich canteen. <laughs> so, I'd, I'd, I bought, most, bought mostly fags and sugar and sold sugar. I was getting murderers queue up for swapping me a matchstick for a cup of sugar. I was like, yep, yeah, no worries. <laughs> so, and what I know quickly, if you go in there with nothing, you're you're picked on, you're traumatised, you're bullied, stuff like that. If you've got something, everyone wants to be your friend. So, you know, in it, I became the sugar baron for two weeks. I'm not
0: proud of being there, but I've never been back since. Yeah. Where, where, um, present was this? Yeah, Forest Bank. Right, and where, whereabouts is that? Is that local? Is that Manchester, right? Salford, yeah. Right. I see there'll be some wild guys in there. Yeah, there was, and it was over full, I remember. Because I'd, I'd
1: never been before, so I didn't know what the... I'd been, like, obviously I'd locked up for a night when I was a kid, but I'd never been held in an actual prison. So going there, going through deception and everything, it was, I know it was pretty quickly it was over full. They meant to have two, one person in a pad. They sometimes had two or three. And we were put in the isolation wing because the prison's just too full and overcrowded. We are only allowed out for an hour a day, and it was just, it was just... Yeah, the conditions were awful and stuff, but they could pretty much do what they wanted in there. There was still drugs, there was still this, that, the other kicking around. And there was still people knocking on your cell, offering you things, you know, get saying they get a visit that day and stuff like that. So nothing much changes in there. You can carry on as normal. So I could see at that time people were going in uh normal and they come out. Addicted to drugs, you know what I mean. There's yeah. a big mark in there too. So I, I stuck to the sugar. I got it out in 14 days for good behaviour, and that was it. I'm not been back.
0: And at that time, in the the jail, what, what, what were you thinking? What was your plans for coming out? Well, at the time,
1: uh, it was just more promising myself never to go back. Proceeds of crime, as you'll know, are quite tough because if you don't, they gave me a figure of about £50,000 and if you you can be waiting for a gate arrest. It doesn't clear it going during time and you still owe that money. Uh, So uh, I was nervous about just getting picked up again and thrown back in over and over, going, I'm never going to be able to raise this money now. Um, So I got it down to about £11,000 cat and mouse, chase, went on for ages and eventually I was able to sort it out and see a future but still, I I still was just working with the family at the time, just building, building work and just Mm -hmm. doing side things on the side. I knew I was going to do something, just didn't know what, still hadn't done music yet again.
0: Yeah. And that's just kind of, obviously you went to Oasis at Heaton Park. Yeah. 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 So, was it, was that the last gigs and Brighton? Was that
2: right? Yeah, that, that
1: was a it was a couple of weeks before they did the one that they split up. Was it Barcelona and they split up? In I think. Paris, was it? I think it was
0: Paris. Yeah,
1: yeah, So it was on that tour. So a few weeks before, it was just a bit sad. I remember being really sad at the end. People were trudging away. It, it was wet. It was a dismal day. And they churned out the festival hits like they do, they would not been throwing out any new music or anything like that. And you just walked away, and you just you were just on reflection, thinking back to the first time you've seen them. And it was like 15 years before, things like that, you know, four, 13, 14 years before. So you knew it was the end, and it was also like the end of your childhood, really. Overspilled it says that, overspilling, uh, being an adult because that's what they say, I also put that in the book, if you were 15 when Oasis came out, you possibly had the best childhood musically, you had the best of everything, from the house music bursting out the mainstream, the underground scenes, the all, all that, you had the grunge, you had the Manchester revival with Oasis and stuff, so yeah, it was a good time, but it was just sad to know, know that it was coming to the end, you just knew it was coming to the end, like, nothing lasts yeah. forever does it? I,
0: fa- I think they were... Oasis weren't able to, like, everything kind of changed early 2000s, didn't it? And they weren't, I don't think Oasis fit in with the rest of the bands at that period. And that's kind of how they, it kind of dragged on the six, seven years, really. It, it, they weren't, it didn't suit them, didn't it? No,
2: yeah, did no, the was, scene they
0: were in. It was quite, they did really well burst
1: through it and obviously again thanks to McGee and stuff, taking a punt on them and mm-hmm. working the raw records to be something. They had good marketing, they had good colours and the it was just simple. It was cool. The they knew how to pick up a line in the press and get, get get some coverage and stuff. They had the full package. They were good looking, good clobber. We'd chuck Tellies out the window. Shag mm-hmm. famous people, <laughs>
2: that
1: sort of thing. You've got all that and you're a rock star and everybody wants a piece of you and they just had the full package. But it was just more an era than like a band. It was more a movement than... About that band, they kicked on a lot of other stuff. your cats and all these other bands that came out on the back of it, and and so they grew that scene again. And it was that era; it was that pre-internet era that was that was special to be a part yeah. of.
0: Well, that's I mean, you look at the the lineup for lot Lomond and Nebworth. You look at the bands they had done with them. It's, yeah, that's like really yeah. better than any festival you could ever imagine. I know. I seen them at Glasgow Green as well, and they had the uh, Primal
1: Scream on. Foo Fighters, they were just pretty new to the UK. Asian Dub Foundation,
0: some others. That was really good with Primal Scream, blew mm. everyone away there. Well, that's and a, and cool. the, obviously you, like you mentioned, Foo Fighters. I mean, that must be where Liam's still got that friendship with Dave Grohl, even yeah. now. So he loves it. That, that's him. where that him. came Man. from. Yeah. Another band came out, the Cortinas, um, where another Liam. Kind of fronting them as you mentioned in the book. Obviously, the first two albums were brilliant, you kind of fell away from them, but they kind of kicked off. If it wasn't for them, finding them and going to this festival at Naya Napa kind of turned your life around in some aspects. Yeah, I guess I've never looked at it like that, but yeah, thanks to the
1: Cortina's pretty much it yeah, at that time when they were gigging around Manchester around 2007 8. The acrylic it became a big underground song. What took you so long and stuff like that? So mm-hmm. they were getting really. They were punky. They were energetic shows. They were really good, and so you thought, yeah, this is it. because BDI had come out at the time, and everyone was clinging on to the Oasis vibe on BDI, but they flopped. And um, they flopped big time. It just wasn't the same. It was Oasis without Noel, and it just just didn't do it. Uh, but yeah, they they were really good. I watched them watched them live back then at the Empress Ballroom, Fibbers in York, and they were just electric shows. Really good songs that were written in a poetic style, but they were written off the cuff. They were written put together now bands when they get developed they have to then commit to studio time they've signed album deals so then they're forced to do an album by a de- deadline they've got to go into the studio craft it from scratch we always find the best music is usually the first one or two albums where they've, yeah. they've had them songs and they've gone in and laid them down throw them down and make them better it's easy to take something and make it better so it, you see that that's what they were doing then uh, he was putting his own musicians to it, and it was just really good. So, yeah, I went to Ionapa to watch them and then met a promoter over there and got the bug again.
0: Yeah. Um, so, obviously, the following year, you you started your own promotions, Mancunia Promotions, associated with quite a few bands, obviously mentioned in the book, Modern Faces, Slow Readers Club, um, Sly Diggs. I had... Dean Fairhurst on a few episodes back and it's funny because I, I don't know how I found you. I, I found you through Facebook. I didn't realise the connection with, with Sly Diggs so yeah. it was nice reading the book the last couple of days and and realising how how much uh, a connection there is there. Obviously these bands then you, you, were fans, you were a fan first and foremost of these bands and that's why you You put them on your your gigs. How was it starting out as a promoter? Was it was it daunting? Kind of getting into something like that? Uh
1: sort of. Um, well, no, not really, because I had that experience from doing it for years as a kid, from everything from raves to putting on gigs. So I knew how to do it and I knew how and social media is obviously a different marketing tool than what we had back then. Um, so it wasn't daunting, I just I was just a bit naive in the fact that I thought if I put on a gig, uh, the gig capacity is 300 c- tickets, 300 times a tenner, that's three grand, <laughs> and that's what you thought your budget is. It's just things like that, little things you learn as you're going on. So then you realise, and now you learn to work out gig budgets, half it, half it again, and then hopefully you work to that, <laughs> and that sort of thing. So it just things, and then if, if so I spent a lot of money on them, uh, didn't really make any money but we had great lineups there were busy gigs and things like that but yeah I was a bit naive early days then and then I thought shall I do it again and it was just modern faces really that got me really I I dig this band I thought they were so cool they were going to be big It's, uh, it's a shame nothing much came from them years later but a lot of the others did we went on a cool headline tour I took them on with Slow Readers Club so you can see the ones that were really dedicated stuck to it they're still there, playing stadiums now. Even Dean Fairhurst, I had them on a couple of weeks ago um, at the club in Wigan, and they've gone on. They were, they were playing St. Ellen Stadium a week later. So it's good to see that from these early meetings when they're just kids starting out to 10 years later they're doing these amazing stuff. It's brilliant just
0: to be a that, that little piece of the jigsaw in their journey.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I, can mind, I can vaguely mind modern faces. I think around about the same time, um, I put on a, a, a couple of gigs in Wishaw, where I stayed. And I had, I think I tried to get Strawberry Ocean Sea, which was, the, there was a band, the Apple Scruffs, and a, another band, High Five Alive, both for Glasgow, and they kind of merged together made this band, Strawberry Ocean Sea. I think I had them, but Modern Faces was one of the bands I was looking at around about that time. But as I say, I put on two gigs, so like one, like, a month apart, and the stress that that caused me, I was like, I'm not doing that again. So for you to kind of push you on through and organising gigs up and down the country, Sheffield, Hull, Leeds, all these places, it's probably the same age as me, man. I take my heart after you. It's... <laughs>
2: Well,
1: that, i thought, thought that's what you did i thought like yeah if i'm going to promote this and be a tour manager then i'm got to be the one picking these venues picking the supports doing everything i know it's a bit different now if you're a band manager or a tour manager you reach out to promoters in different towns like me i just thought i had to do it all so i'd be going like i'd be booking the venue booking all the bands doing uh-huh. doing the whole shows. and uh but yeah i liked it i did like it that way we had some good Good stories. So modern Faces were always, they were always bummed out by the Scottish music industry. They felt neglected in a big way by then because they were getting picked up on a lot of press in England. They were getting big supports in England, but not once did Tea in the Park offer them a gig. And they were desperate to play team the park, so much so that they sent the music and a false identity and got selected. They thought that was the they thought that, that, <laughs> that they had an agenda against them, that it was them, their look, this the style, and all that, that they just didn't pick them on, even though if they they did give them that back in it, they would have kicked on because they were they were getting big supports, big, big shows. And everywhere I took them in England, they had a big crowd there and groupies waiting for them, everything at the gates. You didn't get that really on the unsigned scene. People went. At the stage door
0: for them, but you did yeah. with these obviously uh, at that time, 20, 2012. Um, your son was born, uh, your son was born the, the weekend of the, the roses gigs at Heaton yeah. Park, so you missed out. And that I, I was done there for the when was I there? Was it Sunday night? I think it was, yeah. And um, like you touched on BDI, obviously, BDI supporter. What did you? You you said the flop. What did you think of the two albums? Because I I I thought the second album was really good.
1: I didn't really give much time for them both. I liked the second album. The first one was just churned out there. It was just Liam trying to fill it out. The second album was all right, but Mm. I'd given up on them by then. I thought it wasn't going to work and stuff like that. I admire Liam for what he's done since, like the character he's had. uh, To to pull it back, when you watch the films that he's been in the documentaries. he is a bit of a gentle soul underneath. I mean, he's probably the nicer of the two brothers in my experience. And it was inspirational to see him go through that bad period, come back and get a number one, walk out of Glastonbury at lunchtime to the biggest crowd there and things like that. It was, those are things that I buzz off, right? People achieving or coming back from something that I find amazing, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, after BDI, he was kind of, you thought that was that. You thought he was kind of dead and gone, really. That was that. And you yeah. kind of pull it back for there was amazing. I mean, I went to see him, one of his first gigs back at the Barrowlands, and I took my pal, I took my, pal and my pals and into the dance music, and I took yeah. my pal, and he says it's the best gig of his life. Yeah,
1: we yeah. I saw on that same tour, I think, well, around 2017, I think 2016, 17, and it was really good, really good. And it was just good to see that it wasn't just a generational thing, like you see with a lot of older acts coming back, it, there was kids there, it was still rock and roll, it was still cool, you know, it, was, it wasn't It was people just going because their mums and dads liked them, of that age group, they were going because they liked the music.
2: Yeah,
0: well, I mean, that's I've seen them twice now at the Hydro as well, and you see all these young kids, and a lot of the young kids, they're not even interested in Oasis songs. They, they, yeah. they're, they're buzzing off, like, Liam's solo stuff. Yeah. It's funny when you look around, you see, like, you see a crowd of guys at their age and they're just buzzing for these Oasis tunes. And then you look to the other end and you've got kids that are in the interested. They want the new stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's what's good. That's what yeah. I mean. Then 2013, you, you got a residency in a, a place, Dry Live, uh, where yeah. you were able to put on monthly gigs. Um, at this point, you were doing this Sly Digs tour as well. You did a <laughs> festival. <coughs> Um, you were doing the halftime plays at Man United, and yeah. as well as that, you started on a radio station, an online radio station. So that that's some year, like twenty thirteen. So much stuff going on, so much new stuff. Yes, yeah,
1: sorry. Go on. <laughs>
0: how, how do you kind of juggle that? Obviously, with a young kid there as well. How do How do you manage? at that time I was
1: working full time for the family building firm as well so that was like my getaways the music so it wasn't fair on the wife at the time looking back because uh, mm-hmm. I just spent every every minute as soon as I got home from work straight in the garage where they had an office and just everything Twitter was the one back then that connected you with a lot of things Twitter was huge for that um, I didn't find it that I was I I, I like doing stuff. Like being busy, I like being active and doing stuff. So I didn't find I was taking on too much. Sometimes you would, or you'd feel the guilt if something went wrong, or you spread yourself too thin, and um, that can always be the case. You do learn to delegate a lot as you go older. But back then, it, it was all right. The radio shows I could they they got me a lot of stuff. Man United got me a lot of stuff. It got me to the point like uh of that period. i the Sherlocks, who are now heading for a number one or a top five this year. They um. They came to my house then, posting CDs, knocking on my door, with mm-hmm. like the moments, the years before it was even released on an album, they're you know, like 15, 16-year-old kids. Um, So she, it got you all these bands wanting to get, kind of turn that corner for me from having to research, look, 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 constantly seeking out new acts to them starting to come to me more and more because of the United work, people want to play at United, I was getting sent lots of stuff. So it became easy, it became just listening to the music, listening to what I like, listening to what I thought others would like, rather than me seeking out it all the time, seeking these acts out. It's, they started coming to me more, so within a year, it,
0: it, I got busier, but the job got easier, if that makes sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It, it seems to be a fine a nowadays, obviously, like Man City, i get got their stuff at the day where, I've seen bands, um, the Rosa and stuff like that. I've done stuff for Man City. I had a wee boy on one of my other podcasts, Ryan Jarvis. He does quite a... I know Ryan Ryan well. He uh, he rehearses at one of my studios now and again. Right. He's a good wee boy as well. Obviously, Jamie Webster doing a lot of stuff with Liverpool. And then there's a wee boy um, down south, Louis Dunsford. Louis, yeah, no, Louis. Is Just pattern pattern. Louis is good. I like Louis. He's one of my favorite acts from down south. So it it is kind of nice to see kind of we're getting a kind of connection back with the uh, football and music. And it seems to be the football teams that are trying to kind of reach out to these acts. Well, what well, we they did it with us at the
1: time. Um, the United script was the city. We were, were doing a lot of it. They built a stage and they were letting bands play outside the ground. So okay. it was their way of doing something to counter that. So my job was just to provide one song every half time, one song from a new band in Manchester. But that's when there's a captive audience there. The stadium's full at half time. So it was it was a good. It, it it did me really well, and we got a lot of good bands, a good exposure because of it.
0: Well, this is the thing as well in Manchester. as like, like Manchester and the surrounding areas. There's there's so much talent coming up constantly. A lot of the bands I've I've had on recently, or I'm trying to get on, are, are Manchester-based bands. you get the Rosellas, you get Rolla, you get the Kays. There's yeah. so much Red Drum Club all, all these bands in about the area.
1: Yeah, Wigan's um, the same as well. I've got a, I run a club in Wigan at the minute, and that's the same. That's that's full of bands, Labham's, uh lottery winners, Stanleys who are doing really well, big at the minute.
2: Yeah, but yeah,
0: there's yeah, so much you you couldn't you'd be sitting all day trying to list them because there, there is so much of them going on. And yeah. obviously, when we touch on it quite a bit in the post, podcast as well, obviously that's feeling. Seems to be putting on a lot of them. They seem to be focused on the 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 bands up north more than more than down south. So yeah, they
1: become a bit more commercial. This feeling is a thing. They're more, uh, they get them rep, so they've got a name. So now they can put a rep in each town, and uh-huh. and and then they got a mailing list. Bands from the area they can separate them to a region, make sure they sell a certain amount of tickets to play the gig and stuff like that and yeah fair play if they can do that and what they what i think they do well is when bands do stand out for them they do they can get a good kick up you know they'll go up to the isle away white and stuff like that but it's a long road doing going down that path it's a long road for bands and you won't earn much from it but if you stick to it you'll do all right with it catfishing the bottle men they were the same bands like that who just sherlock's even now you look at my book, it was 10 years ago when they were dropping CDs through my door, so it's not that's happened for them. Like people think, Oh, they've been going since 2018, 2017.
0: Yeah. No, not. they've been going a lot longer, they all have. Yeah, it's a long journey, and that 2014. You, yeah, what was the story with Viola Beach? Did you, how did you meet them? Or did um, it was-
1: through a production company called Sugar House, it was doing, putting a lot of their new bands on there from Chorleyway, I think. Yeah, Chorleyway, and they're really good with new music and a producer. Uh, so he'd send me bands along my way uh, for gigs when he had a new band or a new tip. So and these were really desperate for a Manchester gig. They were doing all right in Warrington. I hadn't heard much of them, but uh, they were promising big numbers and things like that, and... Uh, so that was it. We just started talking. We got uh, arranged the gig, the first headline show in Manchester, and we put them on. And I was really impressed with how good they were. They were just nice kids, really polite and uh, mm-hmm. thankful kids. They didn't pack the place out, which they'd promised, but uh, but they were just dead. They were, I just remember them being really thankful at the end and being dead, dead nice to me. So it was quite shocking what happened to them. And that ripped a big hole in our industry at the time. Just, just, not for the ones that knew them or had some acquaintance with them, just because of how it could happen to anyone and what a tragic loss and things like that. And and it's just, the music would have got there anyway. They were well on the way. Do you know what? Yeah. They were well on the way. So it's quite a shame that posthumously, people will give them that tag, posthumous number, and, and they think that's because that's the reason
0: why, but they, they would have got there anyway. Yeah, they were super talented. And that, there, there was a band up here, running, I, I'm pretty sure it was running about the same time, the Lapels, they were Free School Bride, and the lead singer um, jumped in the Clyde. I don't know, I don't know the it. whether it was suicide or whether it was an accident, but it was round about the same time, and they were kind of the same style as Viola Beach. I kind of seen them as the, like the Scottish version of them. And it kind of, it destroyed them to an extent. The they band all split up after it. And they knew, it. I think all of them are working with, with different bands within the music industry to, to quite a good level. I think one of them's like back in, in, the, in Joseph's band. I think one of them's in Declan Welsh. They're all, they're all doing really well, but it was the same sort of thing. And it kind of ripped a hole in that music scene at the time.
1: It did, but it also gave everyone a big togetherness. It did; it really did. And mm-hmm. even the the wider industry took note from Coldplay covering them at Glastonbury and that sort of thing. It was just they were just special moments that followed for them. Uh, they do a festival now around here uh, that his dad does. My dad's dad does, and that helps out. Then it's for charity and stuff. So it's still going. The river, the river, the river festival. I think it's called
0: Riverfest. Right, yeah. twenty fifteen. Yeah, you, your daughter was born, so that's your three kids now. Um Modern Faces splat, yeah, done the black grape, I got Aberdeen, And yeah. also that year yeah became co-owner of the live room. Um yeah. so firstly, what was it like setting up the, the black grape the black grape stuff and how how easy or how hard was it dealing with John Ryder and um, it was
1: it was Sean Rider's A Breeze. I've done stuff with Sean over the time. Sean's pretty easy. Yeah. It's just that like you get, get surprised by his rider sometimes when he's meant be teetotal, but that just means he doesn't do drugs anymore. <laughs> but was still like a Guinness and a Jameson's. Um so that, that it was it was Kermit sound it was just the it was just on that gig. I did it with a promoter called Alan came about and he knew I was from Aberdeen and he said he's from Shetland, he said, "I'll do Shetland, you do Aberdeen, and we'll come together on this." But um, the Shetland gig got cancelled on the Friday, so we were flying on the Saturday, so we were flying them to Shetland on the Saturday and then doing the gig in Aberdeen on the Sunday. So that was the hardest thing once I found, I was on my way to the airport to send them off from Aberdeen to Shetland when we got told that one flight's been cancelled, so that meant we had to cancel the show, that meant the band was stuck in Aberdeen. And that was the hardest thing. Then the tour managers do whatever you can to keep them, <laughs> keep them yeah. in Aberdeen. So that meant dodgy envelopes and all sorts to Kermit and the lads, to, just to keep them there. But since I have seen them at a party about a year or two after that, we became friends. Since and, and they introduced me as the best promoter we've ever we've ever met. We did a gig in Aberdeen and we were lost, we were stuck, and he walked in with envelopes of goodies for us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like sometimes we have got to go above and beyond. Yeah, it did the job. They stayed and we did a good gig. It was just really stressful because, at that level, it was a big step up for me to do like more or less a mainstream gig and it was a comeback tour. Mm-hmm. So, it was the cost. There was some cost that I didn't amount immer- counter in last minute and it made it a little bit of profit, but barely anything. Like you talk, spending £25,000 and making 26000 back at that, that, that sort of show and finding the money to do that and stuff. So, that was really stressful. But, yeah, it was, I'm glad I did it. It was a good show
0: <laughs> for everyone else. And how did um, the live room come about? How did how did all that begin? It was because I was
1: still... I was moved up to Scotland, and I was still doing the odd gig in Manchester. So just looking for new venues. This venue opened, and um, they were looking for people to come and do live stuff, get it open earlier, because it was a nightclub. So I put some shows in. I remember... Alias Kid was the first one and that sold out within a day or two. So then this took notice of me, the owners of the property or the people who were running it at the time and didn't know too much about the place. Um and then the next two sold out, so they asked me to come on board and why do I want to buy one of the partners out and me being an idiot. Yeah, okay, go on then, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> but yeah, and yeah, so I went for that. I ended up like trying to raise the money to go buy half of the business. Did do and but there was more to running a club than meets my heart. Definitely ruined my head with that decision because I was doing yeah. I wanted out. Of, I wanted to come back to Manchester. I wasn't liking it much up in Scotland anymore. Um, I didn't. I'd gone up there to be a sensible parent, get a job on a building site, earn some money, have a normal job. But I was miserable doing that. I, I, it didn't become like that. I was working twelve hours a day. So then your kids are still in bed when you go to go to work. They're in bed when you get home. So you, you're working for what? Just to work. So I, I wanted, I wanted it, and went for it. But I learned a lot from doing that.
0: Yeah, uh, the the following year, you you did another that you brought back the festival which we never really touched on obviously one day one love festival the first time you did that um you ended up getting shafted didn't you um oh, yeah. you got the venue like and every day for nothing so they get there so that uh, they could
1: get I'd say, I can see that now looking back whenever I'm ven- venues and stuff like that that was actually before I had the club but um <laughs> but yeah I can see uh I can see why they do that now, because but as me as a promoter, I needed that money because I've got bands to pay and stuff like that. I needed people paying on the door and they're seeing everybody outside partying and stuff because I'd had the first part of the festival outside as free. The indoor at night was ticketed. They just opened the doors and let everybody in and, that, um, and just went against my wishes, really. So I ended up leaving before the headline. I was like, I said this. just so, went
0: home. So whatever, I think so you brought this one back then, and your your venue, and you mentioned in the book that one of the highlights of the that festival was a Scottish band, Wolves.
1: Yeah, yeah. why did you know them?
0: It's that they, they were from Fernland, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. The Wolf Pack. Did they have at that point? Did they have the two the two twins in the band? Yeah, 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 They're still yeah. going. I'm friends
1: with all all of them guys. They were yeah. they, they were just bonkers because they turned up they didn't turn up late, they turned up before any Manchester band and they drove down from Dunfermline. So they were there uh, bright and early before sound check and they were all half cocked by the time they got there <laughs> anyway. So they just made the atmosphere just dead lively and happy and just got to get everyone else on it with them and stuff and, yeah. And the set was really good, but they were just lively, there was just a great laugh, and they just got everyone buzzing along with them, and boosted the atmosphere in the venue that day. I think the Blinders were on that day as well. Were there yeah,
0: another really good band, aye? Yeah. I I can mind seeing Wolves uh, supporting Kyle Faulkner, and a wee pub in Paisley, and uh, obviously they two twins stood out, they were getting, everybody was sh- uh, shouting abuse at them, saying that they looked like Ed Sheeran. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> they they were wild man, they, they too were wild and seeing them now what they're doing with with our new band Twinstown when with a with a carry on there and with a, a bunch of boys there. Grandmaster Flash as well um, ended up trying to sue you. Is this I'm I'm pretty sure I have seen these gigs up and down the country. Did the day one up in in Glasgow at the
1: yeah, I think on that tour, they do it. They come over every summer. Well, it's the Furious Five and um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and they come over every summer and do the touring, um, which I didn't know at the time. I didn't really know much about them. It was before my scene, not my thing, but as a business level, it is. Um, once you look into something like that, I think you can make it work. Uh, initially, they were looking for a bigger venue. But the Grandmaster Flash came about suing us for using the term Grandmaster in reference to Melly Mel. No, so I'm like, well, the, you can't sue the chess champion of the world and stuff like that, can you? It was just all games and it I don't know now, even to this day, whether it was just something that they do, that they collaborate on, a lot of them. <laughs> and just make a bit of extra cash and they don't have to do any gigs when they can just sue people for putting an advert out there. There's a lot of that that goes on in the industry currently with bands like an old punk band are getting a lot of that at the minute called Slaughter and the Dogs. They they have that. They can't even play their own name anymore. The guy who wrote the song and stuff. Um, but with Grandmaster Flash, it was a mediator coming in. So I just got that impression at that time that they just fired mail shots to people who used this name, hopeful. If they send a 100 emails, one might pay them. I'm like, well, uh-huh. with me, there's no chance. We're asking for 50 grand to use the name. I was <laughs> like, you'd be lucky. <laughs>
0: so no way. Did, and did they tie this with the other promoters happened in the country as well? Well, they did, yeah, they because yeah, everybody was... I.
1: Done, I'd organised like eighteen dates of a tour for them. So all these other promoters, Stumpy up in Glasgow and people like that, uh, uh-huh. they were all you know Stumpy, Stumpy Handy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he he was one of them. So he's there all flapping, about like, don't worry, don't don't worry about it. So I just started replying to their emails and saying every email you send me, I'll charge you. Can't sue you a thousand pound, that sort of thing. So every time they do, there's no need for that. Just pays the money. That's two thousand pound you owe me and. Eventually, I told everyone to do that, but a lot of promoters did cancel and and pulled out of the gig because of it. But now, today, even today, I'm friends with... uh... Uh, Scorpio on Facebook Elliot, uh, uh, Elliot Ness he's called Elliot he's called but i um, friend of him on Facebook and I see him putting his gigs up from this weekend and he's there we're going Master Flash all touring again now Something was it a big fiddle all along was it a big fucking fiddle because we're meant to be rivals and not getting on anymore that was the whole point so when yeah. Furious 5 were touring without him Master Flash was suing all the people at Furious 5 <laughs> was, in hindsight I think was it was it were they just on the fiddle yeah. all of them? Yeah. Anyway, the tour went ahead. But one of my funniest moments from that time was when I booked the gig and they've got that song, one of the bands Sugar Hill Gang and Furious Five, it was they got that song Hotel, Motel, Holiday Inn, that one. Mm-hmm. So I'd booked them in the I booked them in the palace and they had one more guest coming along. And uh, so I needed another room, but the palace didn't have any rooms. But so then I saw the Bright light to the Holiday Inn across the road. I thought this is genius. <laughs> yeah. This is absolutely genius. They're definitely going to like this idea. So I went over and I said, "You'll never guess what? Who I've got in this? Who I've got? Who I've got in Manchester right now? The actual guys who sang the Holiday Inn song." And they're like, "Fuck off!" I'm like, I "Actually do, I actually do." <laughs> uh, they didn't believe me. I said, all I want is one room and I'll get them to come in and do a little advert for you and stuff like that just for one or two rooms. And they just didn't believe me and fobbed f- f- me off. <laughs> like, I thought it was <laughs> absolutely genius. I walked away absolutely dejected. had to pay over the odds for a room somewhere else. But what they missed a big trick there. Do you know what I mean? They'd still be using this to this day. They had them doing the,
0: some dancing. for them. Oh, yeah. There was a... There was a what was the story with Paul Young and Sean Ryder, and how did that come about? Oh, wow. I, I mean, it seems like the most unlikely pair. I know, yeah, there's been a few unlikely pairings like that come along, like me and Eddie Kid. <laughs> but
1: Paul, Paul, with Paul Young and Sean Ryder. That was for a TV show called Rock Tales. Now, this was Paul Young's idea. He was piloting the show called Paul Young, but I knew the producer, Heather, from London, and she was a good friend of ours through a band called the Wenatchee Tribe and Alias Kid. And uh, and so it was through the Wenatchee Tribe, really, that they um, they said, Anton, we've got uh, this Heather, the producer, wants to talk to you about Paul Young. I'm like, what? Paul, the Paul Young, like 80s Paul Young. And they're like, yes, yeah, so I, I remember being in the school, school waiting for my kids pick them up when I'm talking to Ant from actually Tribe about it. I'm like, no, wait, 80s Paul Young. I used to love him. My mum was a big fan. He said he's just got this idea for a show called Rock Tales with a celebrity chef called Barry Vera. We'll come up to Manchester, they need to use a club. We get celebrities in, we get them drunk, they tell the maddest tail it's a simple format but the drink was the big part of it where they get loose lips and stuff Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah that day when I when I agreed it organized it arranged it all and Paul Young came in first so I'm setting Paul Young up in the back room setting the cameras up and things and then and Sean came in then late and Sean was like, Is it it was just mad moment and shaking? His head. It's amazing, isn't it? Two of us, we were choking cheese in the eighties and here we are. <laughs> it's amazing. We've never met, never ever met. But it was dead funny. I remember it ended up being like me, a few from actually Tribe, one lad from Alias Kid and Paul Young sat in my office till dead late, doing a big locking and stuff where Paul Young told me all sorts of funny stories, like Gino DeCampo robbing his house and <laughs> Like that, it just it was just mad to have them together, um, and having Bez and Sean on that particular show. But they came to the job left, and it was Paul Young and they like, stayed partying with all the Manchester lot till the early hours. So, it was a bit of a turn up,
2: yeah.
0: And round right about this time as well as uh, he brought back Finley Quay as well. Um, yeah, that I mean that's a really nice story in the book. Obviously when they. Yeah. He came on stage and he went off again, obviously suffering a lot of anxiety and stuff like that. It was a really nice tale about how how you kind of got him to finish the show and...
1: Yeah, with Finlay it's um with Finley, a lot of people he gets a lot of bad press because I'll give you examples. He couldn't play one night, he, that viral video went out of him and the promoter cancelled the show, thought he was taking the mick, but As a friend, he has, he had, he does have mental issues. He suffers from stage fright, anxiety, things like that. Is he good enough? Do you know? And. And stuff like that so he's not taking the mick there he's not got the. He's, he's, he's trying to get himself in the position getting him out in that position on stage was hard enough in the first place you know what I mean so um fair play that he's kind of he stayed with me a couple of weeks ago actually slipped up on my couch here a couple of weeks ago right. he'll turn up on the mega bus now and again say on you up and then he'll just stay and he'll go off on his travels but fair play to him uh, recently he's, he's He'd not had a drink. He didn't have a drink that night. He never smoke or anything like that. He was. Clean and he was off on a. He was going off walking up the hills for a couple of weeks. So that was good, and that was the thing at the time. He got shafted by the industry when he was really young. So he finds it really hard to trust people, and going forward. And that that was his issue. And that that particular gig, the crowd stayed with him. They could see that he was suffering. I would go into the green room, and his whole family was saying, "Come on, Finley, you can do it." And he's coming up with different excuses why it wasn't working. His guitar wasn't working. Uh, things like that, but it, it was and he just and he kept coming back out it took about three hours, but he came out and did it and he finished his set, and afterwards I'll come back with my band <laughs> and I'm like, you're yeah, okay <laughs> but no, I'm joking if you're listening, Finn but, <laughs> but he was alright, yeah, but yeah but yeah, I admired him for that, and he's come through a lot of bad stuff, Finley, he's overcome a lot of bad stuff, he's no angel don't get me wrong, but he's come yeah. through a lot but that's as, other... you,
0: as you said that the industry can be so tough for these boys, and that a lot of them are starting out really young, and they don't know what they're doing, and they're, they've been taking advantage of. And yeah. that's this is where are the the mental health issues come into play. Yeah, it's only as you kind of grow up and you you realize you've maybe not lived a normal life, you've uh, been yeah. taking advantage, of and it's and it's really hard. Obviously, for you then. In 2017, that that was a tough year, obviously, the issues with the live room. Yeah. You know that, you know, and both your grandparents died that year as well and you had the, the Manchester bombing. So how do, you, how do you deal with a year like that? How do you pick yourself up after all of that? Um, to be
1: honest, other people do. Sometimes you've got to give yourself a kick up the arse. With me personally, come out of the club, and I thought like I was—that was it for me with music. I was gonna, that's it. But I was gutted about that. I was gutted about that. Like I say, you're only as good as the last thing you do, and if you fuck that up, you're a up. <laughs> you know what I mean? So <clears throat> get out there and fix it. <clears throat> repair the situations as best as you can. I'll kick on, and it was I had lots to. I had security building all sorts to pay off, so I had to get a normal job. I had to just do deals in place for certain things, pay weekly bills to security firms. I had and just all this mad stuff that just knuckle down and do it. And after about a year, not even a year, about seven or eight months, it was Wenatchee Tribe. Actually, were ringing me up at Christmas time. So like, where are you? We miss you. Come back, be our manager, be our Release our music, take us on tour again, and stuff like that. So, and I was like, right, really? You what? You want me? And I was like, yeah, we all want you. We all miss you and stuff. So I was like, so then, yeah, people, I got a bit of a boost from that and felt good about it and reactivated all my socials. I was like, hello world, I'm back, (laughs) and that was it. I sorted out all my problems within a few months, and I I was ready. I thought I'm not ready to give this up yet. This is no, so went for it again.
0: Yeah, to point you, um, you brought Mancunia. Is it Mancunia Marley Records? Um, Marley Mancunia, yeah, with Fat Neck, Al Power. And then the the TV as well. Yeah, MMTV. That, yeah. that
1: was with Fat Neck. We've gone on to do that. We still do that now. It's called Mancunia TV. Now I started initially with Carl Power, the Prankster. We went on the pitch with uh, United and Bayern Munich that time. Right. It was maybe. That was it. Do you know what I mean? He mm. invaded that. Oh, that was my business partner. He was Marley, I was Mancunia, and we came together as Marley Mancunia. And so he that show he knew knows a lot of celebrities, a lot of famous people. So that was his side, a lot of boxers, and I got the bands together and stuff. And um, he ended up going through a rough patch, and I went out on my own after that. So he's not involved anymore. But it's that's why it's Mancunia, not Marley Mancunia anymore.
0: Uh huh. Oh, I had um. Cause you done some spoken word and stuff on that as well. I had um, Leon the pig farmer on um, a few episodes back as well. I think he done some stuff with Air TV. Yeah,
1: Jack. Yeah, he was my resident poet, so I got him involved. Uh, just so because it used to be me just finding all these people, so having someone who's good, known on the circuit, that can see the best talent out there and get them along as well. So that was his role. He'd have a he'd talk and get somebody a uh, poet from the area in. Mm-hmm. So that's good.
0: Um right about this time obviously that's like 2018 then COVID kind of appears. So how how did that affect um your work as promoter and stuff like that? Um it's quite hit and miss this one
1: because what what was the, the social aspect was the hardest thing for people in our community if that's what you're used to every week going to shows and going out and seeing people and or you a lot of people in the music industry I do go to these gigs they they've not got they, a lot of them are single a lot of them don't have, and they that's that's what it's about it's a it's a community aspect going to shows so that was the hardest thing about it but we didn't really suffer too much with because. We quickly came up with a way to try and uh, do the show and do carry on doing live shows. So we created an unlocked version of the show and we did that every week so we could still provide the music interviews. Just mad looking back. We built screens where we could do interviews from either side of the screen and how stupid we were to do that. But we kept on and did it. And it, the hardest thing was the constant change of restrictions. So you couldn't plan, even if you're told, like, we'll be out of, we'll be out of. And these restrictions, by so you normally you plan a gig for them, but you just didn't know. So mm-hmm. doing stuff like that uh, when we did eventually come out, and we were able to do a couple of festivals, they sold out pretty quickly, and it was just a good moment uh, to come back. But what annoyed me at that period was all the funding that was in place for other people, all the the, the support schemes. Music got absolutely nothing. We had to. They took ages for the Arts Council to release some programs to help the industry the arts council's website's awful it's notoriously terrible it's like a portal from 1980 it's mm-hmm. that it's that bad and they don't give you any feedback if you make an admin error you're out do you know what i mean stuff like that they make it really hard and you hear all these groups the theater exchange group and royal something getting millions and millions of pounds and we were the we are the grassroots we're the foundations of the industry what we do and without that everything does come crashing down so, so for us to struggle so much to get funding and be on our, our toes to keep going all that time, that was the hardest thing. It was constantly trying to get funding, constantly trying to get sponsorships, constantly finding ways to tick over, uh, finding our own channels to sell stuff. I was creating T-shirts, art, posters, anything we could do just to
0: pay the bills on the property all the time. Mm-hmm. with no point allowed in. So going forward, like where are, where are you at now? And what's the plans going forward? Obviously, you're doing this independent independence independence. Yeah. that's that a is that your venue in Wigan?
1: No, it's a live venue in Wigan that went through a big refurb in uh, about four or five months ago. Four months ago, and they asked me to come and in, get involved and take over the live side, run the venue, get it busy. That's uh, and just build build up a gig calendar there. So things like this are really quite hard when you start somewhere from scratch, especially a new town. And um, So it takes a few months. So we've got that to the position now where from this month we've got I've got gigs in every Friday Saturday from the end of this month. Really good calendars, having to mix it up with tribute stuff, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I still do that. I have my art center in Manchester where we do rehearsals, the odd thing. We were looking to move that, but um, at the minute it's still there, and we're just yeah. I've got the TV show that we do, still putting on gigs. So the biggest biggest thing I do at the minute is the running the gig calendars for music venues, just and yeah.
0: An independent. Right. So are you just just as busy as ever then?
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but uh, summer's always hard though. Summer's quite tricky in our industry, especially nightclubs and music venues. There's not a lot goes on. It's really hard to like get that business during the summer so this is when you really kick in you know from September end of August to March is like our our really real peak period so just making sure I'm all so it's been I'm quite ahead now in where I need to be I've booked up till next year with the calendar so it's now just a case of promoting and throwing the hell out of this stuff and making each thing we've got booked in as good as they can be so mm-hmm. yeah I'm not I'm not as busy as I need as, as I could be, could be a bit busier but, but yeah I've got so far ahead it, it's good to have that leeway now where I'm not panicking I've not got nothing in in three weeks or I've got nothing on, no show on in four weeks at the venue I've got every gap pretty much filled so they're, they're really good as a venue, they give me a social media manager, we've got a bar manager now who's started so a lot of that I used to do I used to do the bar management, absolutely everything from the venue down but Specifically, now I focus on the events management, the DJs, the club nights, and the music side of things. And We've got someone for everything at the company. So it's a pleasure to not have that on my own back for the first time in my life. It's always something I've created. Mm -hmm. I've always done and always had the weight of expectation the weight of the finances, the burden of all that on me. But to get to a position where companies are offering you that role is, is quite good it's quite an achievement for me. I've just got to prove it. And it's hard to get results instantly in that sort of industry. You have to, you have to have people who trust your process. It's just like a football club. You, Strip out the dead you build from the bottom, and everything can be replaced to be something better. And that takes time. So, yeah. as you the first few months, you'll do gigs. Some might work, some might not. So, you just get to a point where you repeat the ones that do every few months, while still making sure they can subsidize you to do the grassroots stuff and give other people an opportunity. So you can keep that cycle going and and keep seeing who's going to do well, who's going to do
0: well, and help them get get a kick up. Mm-hmm. I think that's us. Then anyway, I think I think we've touched on everything. Obviously the podcast called Time for Heroes. I don't I don't think I mentioned to you, but hopefully you've listened to some of the episodes. But what I asked for is um my guest to pick four heroes to come for dinner. Um, four heroes to come for dinner. Why why you've picked them and what would you cook them?
1: Uh Eric Cantona. Maybe one about Ryan Jarvis said that as well. <laughs>
0: uh, I don't know. I've, I don't. I didn't have him on this podcast to be fair. I had him on a different one before I started this. But uh he would have picked him anyway.
1: A very like Liam Gallagher, although because he'd be funny. Uh, I've met Sean and Bez, so I wouldn't have them on. Uh, John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, yeah, right. And, uh, I probably cook him pasta because that's all I'm good at, spaghetti bog nice. I'm a bit, a bit of Italian, so an Italian man can cook a spaghetti.
0: Yeah. Can't can't and I and Liam Gallagher together, obviously they've done that for video together. Yeah. Well that's it.
1: You can see they've got a bit of banter already, so they'd have a bit of a laugh together and they'd have a they you'd have a bit of football banter with them on the yeah. stage and they both wouldn't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and then I mean that's even I mean, you get Liam Gallagher with John Lennon. So he's probably not even going to bother. We can't, if John Lennon's there, he's just going to be pestering him all night. Yeah, John Lennon could just play his tunes in the corner. And... It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the day. Before I'm we go, late. obviously, if people want to get in touch with you, and um, where can they get in touch with you? They can. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm only joking. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm quite private on there, though, but I've got the socials, uh, Mancunia Art Centre, Mancunia Art Centre on Instagram. Uh, obviously, me on Facebook, Anton Pell. Uh, if you want to email me about any gig shows or anything, uh, it's mancuniapromos at gmail.com. Or for anything in Wigan, it's Anton Yeah.
0: Well, I'll post all the links on the... Uh, description in the show notes um, but I for coming on the day it's been an absolute pleasure
1: my TV as well Right. if you okay. hashtag Mancunia, you'll get everything going back
0: years yeah I'll stick all that in the show notes and people can get a hold of you there but I yeah. absolute pleasure having you on the day it's been brilliant talking to you aye uh, and you Martin it's been a pleasure yep. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast. Or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast. Or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1. Or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com. You'll find time for heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly enjoy.